everyone. My name is Jordan Sedeno. I'm one of the associate pastors here, but uh, I'm glad to be here with you and teach you God's Word and preach up here. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah today. We've been going through our series on the minor prophets. So if you have, it up, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Zephaniah. If you don't, there's a pew Bible in front of you. And uh, we're going to go ahead and begin today. We're going to read the first seven verses of Zephaniah, and then also the last 11 verses of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1.1. The, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters my, of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your not, not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time I will bring you in 
and at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your rise, says the Lord. Well, chances are, if you've ever asked anyone what their life verse is, they've told you something like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but will have everlasting life. Maybe they told you what Paul said to the Corinthians, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Chances are they haven't mentioned Zephaniah 1-2. Hey, what's your life verse? I will utterly sweep away everything upon the face of the earth, declares the Lord. But I mention that because that first verse, it really does set the tone of Zephaniah. It is a heavy book. I just have to warn you. It's a weighty book. You probably can tell from the verses we just read. It has much to say concerning the wrath of God, particularly linking it to the day of the Lord. But it also has much to say about the hope we have and the grace of God. But the day of the Lord is the singular theme in Zephaniah. It appears in the other prophets, but in Zephaniah, it is more clear than anywhere else and mentioned more than anywhere else. It is a day Zephaniah describes as near, imminent, close, could happen at any moment. And it's not yet here, but it will come in the future. The day of the Lord is one of both judgment and blessing. Judgment for those who have fallen away and rebelled against God and blessing for those who have entrusted themselves to God. And so my hope for you today is that you're moved to respond in trust and worship of the dual attributes of God, specifically how it's displayed in the day of the Lord. It is a day of wrath and it is a day of grace. And that's really the simple outline for today. It's just a two-point sermon. First is the day of the Lord, a day of wrath. And that takes up the majority of Zephaniah. But then there is also the day of the Lord, a day of grace, which will be our second point today. And before we start the text in Zephaniah, I think it's important you guys get some background. You know what's going on in the book. If you want to understand a book of the Bible, its content, you got to understand its context. And before we go in, I want to pray as well because we need the Holy Spirit if we want to apply these to our life, apply these truths to our lives. So let's pray. God, um, as I was studying this week, I feel the weight of this book. Lord, it is heavy. You have indignation and you burn with anger towards sin and unrighteousness and injustice, Lord. And there will come your day where you will right every wrong. You will judge the secrets of men. God, I just pray that we would think often about that day that is coming. It is a frightful day, as Zephaniah wrote, Lord but it can be a joyful day for those who have trusted in you. So help us to listen to these truths today, Lord, but not just to listen, but to obey, to trust you, to take refuge in Christ on that day, Lord. And Lord, just help me as I preach from your word to do it clearly, to articulate well. And I thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So some background on the book of Zephaniah. Nothing is really known about the prophet Zephaniah except what's in the book of Zephaniah itself. Zephaniah is uniquely, something that's unique about it is when we read that first verse, there's actually a four-person genealogy there. And it links Zephaniah with a certain Hezekiah. And we can't know for sure, but most people agree it probably is that way because it's trying to link Zephaniah with King Hezekiah, who was a former king of Judah, a righteous one at that, a good king. And the implications being that Zephaniah was someone who was not only a prophet, but of royal blood, who would have had standing when he was speaking to the people. He was a member of the royal family. And in addition to this, due to his vivid detail throughout the book, he knows a lot about Jerusalem and what is going on there. So it's likely Zephaniah resided there. The name Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden or protected. The Lord has hidden or protected. No one really knows for sure. Maybe the Lord sovereignly knew um, what he would prophesy about. More likely, his parents possibly named him that because of the wicked king Manasseh or Amon, who would have been ruling when Zephaniah was born. Perhaps he was hidden from their wicked reign when there was just violence covering the land. Zephaniah, it's most likely self-authored, but even if not, the most important key to understanding Zephaniah is that it's meant to be understood as taking place under the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah. King Josiah ruled Judah from about 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., Given the dates of Zephaniah, if it's true that Zephaniah was uh, prophesying in his reign, it would have made him a contemporary of some of the other minor prophets. He would have known of Nahum and Habakkuk and Jeremiah. They all would have prophesied around this time. Josiah's reign ended in 640 BC when he was struck down by the king of Egypt, the pharaoh king named Necho. And I love these details in the Bible because this isn't just a story. This isn't just somewhere out there. Someone didn't just make this up. King Necho, Pharaoh of Egypt, is someone in history we know of. Josiah was a king. But sadly, Josiah's life ended in in, in a battle called the Valley of Megiddo, or a place. It's an important thing to know when we get to the book of Zechariah that uh, there's actually a prophecy that involves the valley, Valley of Megiddo and Christ. But Josiah was the great-grandson of the righteous king Hezekiah. He was the grandson of the wicked Manasseh and the son of of even more wicked Amon. I point that out to you. I don't know how much, how much you guys have read the Old Testament. I've been reading it again and just been through First and Second Kings uh, with my good friend Kevin Rosenberg. We've been reading through the Old Testament. But one thing that's shocking to me, especially working with youth, It's just the need to pray for them. If the line of kings throughout Kings and Chronicles tells you anything, it tells you that being born into a Christian family, being born into a family that fears the Lord, doesn't guarantee that you will know the Lord. And so we need to pray for our kids. We need to pray for our students, for their salvation, and that they would know the Lord. But just, so Josiah and Zephaniah were probably second or third cousins. Josiah became king when he was just eight years old. That's one of the things he's most famous for. He was the child king. His father was assassinated. 
King Amon, and he became king when he was eight. It's a lot on his shoulders. And according to 2 Kings 23-25, he was the most righteous king that Judah had ever had, even more than King David. This is what it says in 2 Kings 23-25, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And under the reign of Josiah, the nation of Judah was reformed in many ways. And the reforms, you can find them if you want to read it later. 2 Kings chapter 21 to 23 and 2 Chronicles 33 to 35 describes it. The first was Josiah made repairs to the temple. It was in disarray. It was falling apart. And money was supposed to be taken up to fix it, but the former kings hadn't. He restored God's laws. There's actually a priest who found the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Josiah sought to return to God's law, to return God's people. He banished pagan worship. He destroyed altars. He destroyed statues made to other gods. He reinstituted the Passover. For all we know that the Jewish people hadn't celebrated for decades, possibly centuries. And lastly, he banned the mediums and the necromancers, the ways that people would seek divination in Judah. Now, there's some debate of when exactly the date of Zephaniah's takes, uh, his prophecies take place. Is it before Josiah's reforms or after? I tend to conclude, conclude based on what happens in Zephaniah that it was actually written right at the beginning of Josiah's reforms or just previous to it, or before it, sorry. And the reason that is because pagan worship is still prevalent, even amongst the royal family. And Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, has yet to be destroyed and come to a visible end. So it's important as we work through Zephaniah, we realize that's the backdrop of all, backdrop, that's of all that's being prophesied. God's people remain in Judah and Jerusalem. Their brothers to the north of Israel have already been defeated and captured by the Assyrian Empire. And unfortunately, Judah is surrounded by their enemies in all directions. If you look at that map, Judah is at the center there. And they're surrounded by their enemies in all directions. Assyrians to the north, Cushites to the south, Moabites to the east, and the Philistines to the west. It was a dire time, a threatening time. However, the interesting thing is that God's wrath toward his people, as Zephaniah prophesies, is primarily towards Judah and not just the enemy nations. And it looked forward to the day of the final vindication of God against all the sins of mankind in the day of the Lord. And so that brings us to our first major section in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, a day of wrath. Paul the Apostle wrote this in Romans eleven twenty two. 22. Behold, then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's the aim today to behold not just the kindness of God, but also the severity of God. 
And so though the wrath of God is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people, me included, it's a necessary topic. We have to talk about it. As Christians, we shouldn't avoid it. We shouldn't downplay it. We shouldn't be ashamed of it because God certainly is not. And I have to say, you'll never, ever fully grasp the grace of God if you don't understand the wrath of God. You will never fully grasp the grace of God if you do not understand the wrath of God. And you will never understand the wrath of God unless you understand the grace of God. So God is to be worshipped not just for his mercy, for his forgiveness, for his love, but also for his justice, his righteousness, his indignation toward everything that is wrong, everything that is sinful his fierceness and his gentleness, his anger and his compassion. To give an example, think of the ocean. We live in Southern California. We love the ocean, or at least most of us do. Pastor Tim was telling me his kids not so much, but we love it. And the ocean can be an awesome place, a peaceful place. Just went out there this week in the morning, and it can be calm and serene and smooth in the water's glass, when the sets are just the right size, to ride the waves and enjoy them. The air is crisp. It feels clean. There's not a lot of people out there. It's relaxing. The ocean can be a place filled with good memories. Some of my best memories are made surrounding the ocean or in the ocean, of friends, of fun, of getting together. But the ocean can also be a place of dread. Dread when the storm envelops you. Dread when night comes and you can't see. When the water's clouded and it's shrouded. It can be a dreadful place, whether you're a young kid or experienced adult. It can be a place of death, a place of unpleasant memories where things are forgotten. I learned this lesson myself when I was in high school. Went to the beach after school one day. Huge swell had come in that year, and uh, I didn't intend to ride the waves because I knew better than that, but I at least wanted to go see what it was like to swim in there, to watch the surfers catch 10, 12-foot sets, and so I dove in. My friends behind me, and uh, one of my good friends, Luke, actually had to be rescued from the water that day, but I remember swimming around in there and watching these waves crashing over me as I'm going under and feeling exhilarated but fearful for my own life at the same time. And I think that's exactly what it is like with God. If you want to learn to truly appreciate and navigate the ocean, you got to know both those things. And with God, it's the same. If you want to appreciate and relate to God and know him, you have to understand his wrath and his grace. And so Zephaniah most clearly articulates God's wrath in the day of the Lord. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. This sums up God's wrath in that day well. It says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. 
And so something important I want you guys to realize as we're working through Zephaniah 2 is that the wrath of God is not to annihilate people, but it's actually to purify his people in Zephaniah. And that's evidenced by the fact that there's people who remain after a remnant, after God's wrath is poured out. But the question for us in Zephaniah is what exactly is God so angry about? What has provoked him to that wrath? And why all the judgment and the gloom and doom? Why is this book so heavy? And I think there's four categories I can see in Zephaniah that God gives judgment for. The first one is divided devotion amongst God's people. If you look at verse 4 in chapter 1, it says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of idolatrous priests along with priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs on the host of, to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, but yet swear by Milcom. Milcom is another word for the god Molech. And so there were corrupted priests. There's people who were worshiping pagan gods. They would go on the roof, and yeah, they would pray to Yahweh. They would pray to the God of Israel, but they'd also pray to this other God. And Molech was a god that their neighbors worshipped, which people would sacrifice their children to. It was a horrendous practice, but they worshipped them. And in chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. Uh, it says, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. And those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. And that's a picture of a worship of another pagan god, Dagon. If you want to read about this practice, look up 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. But it talks about that the statue of Dagon actually fell on the temple steps of these worshipers. And therefore, those worshipers of Dagon, when they would enter their temple to worship their god, they would actually jump over the place where that statue fell because they thought it was sacred. And so it's a picture of God's people worshiping false gods. The second one was what I would like to call practical atheism. Chapter 1, verse 9, again, God talks about the violence and the deceit that they filled their master's house with. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, At that time, speaking of God, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. The NASB says stagnant in spirit. Those whose hearts, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They were going to do whatever they want. Didn't care what God's laws are. Didn't care what the morality of it. God's not going to do anything. I'll just do whatever I want. And so chapter 3, verse 7 says, all their deeds were corrupt, and they were eager to corrupt other people. The third was that there was corruption of the spiritual and political leaders. We read in verse 8 that it says, the king's sons wear foreign attire. What's that saying? Is they're wearing things not uh, natural to their nation that they're worshiping these other gods, that they're assimilating into these other cultures in a way God commanded Israel and Judah they should not do. Chapter 3, verse 2, they didn't accept instruction, they didn't trust the Lord, and they did not draw near to their God. Chapter 3 also talks about corrupt princes. 
judges, prophets. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. They were not teaching people God's law. They were doing violence to it. In chapter 2, verse 1, and 3, verse 5, it says, They know no shame. They had no shame over what they had done. And the last category I would call the pride of prosperity. Verse 118, God assured Israel that in that day their wealth would not save them from the wrath of God. They were trusting in their wealth. And for the other nations in their pride and their prosperity, they would experience God's wrath as well. The taunting of Moab toward Judah, the reviling of the Ammonites towards God's people, and the pride of the nations would meet the wrath of God. Now, it's easy to look at a book like Zephaniah and to be sickened by the blatant corruption. We can imagine what living in that culture was like. However, we must remember most of these judgments were not towards the other nations. A few of them were. Most of them were towards God's people. And if they could be guilty of those sins, so can we. We're not immune to those sins. And so you look at divided devotion. You may worship God on Sunday, but what do you devote most of your time and money and energy to every other day of the week? Is this the only time you're coming to worship God? You may bow down to God, you sing the songs, but you bow down your heart to the idols of success, of work, of pleasure, of family, or status. You sacrifice things for those idols. So we too can be guilty of divided worship. Question I've often posed to our students of those who claim to know the Lord and be Christians is if I took a log of your life and looked at the conversations you have, how you spent your time, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, would it be any different than someone who doesn't know the Lord? And yes, those things will not save you. Those things aren't necessarily what makes you a Christian, but they're an indication. Their fruit, as Jesus says, what is the fruit of your life? It's often said, is God the center of your life? But the question is, is God the circumference of your life? You see, so much of the Christian life is not taking Jesus and trying to put him in your life where he fits. The Christian life and people who are disciples of Christ are trying to understand, how do I take my life and wrap it around Jesus' life? How do I take my life and wrap it around Christ's life? And so if God is the circumference of your life, everything you do is within what God desires, what God wills. And when it comes to practical atheism, you you might be someone who's a practical atheist. It doesn't require that you intellectually acknowledge that there is no God. You don't believe God will really punish your sin. At least certainly 
not yours, maybe other people's, but yours isn't that bad. Your sin is justified. God doesn't see those images that pass by your computer screen when no one else is there, when you're in private. God doesn't see the fits of rage that happen in your home before you come to church. God doesn't see your apathy and your refusal to lead your family. God doesn't see the time or money you cheated from your boss at work. God doesn't see you push the line between sober and drunk. God doesn't see the excessive time and energy you devote to keeping a front for others, to keeping a facade. And just like the Judeans, we too can be guilty of that practical atheism. We forget God sees it all. He's always with us. And that one day, in the day of the Lord, nothing will be hidden. Nothing done in the darkness will not be brought to light. All the secrets of men will be judged. Corruption of spiritual and political leaders. Pretty sure I don't have to convince any of you for the corruption of political leaders. (laughs) I don't think there's almost a person in the world who thinks too highly that political leaders aren't corrupt. But let me say something. If you're a Christian, don't obsess over the political landscape. No matter where you live, don't obsess over it. Governments have always been corrupt, and they always will be corrupt because they're filled with sinners. They are filled with sinners. And it doesn't mean Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do what God has asked us or do what we think is best for the nation. But we shouldn't obsess over it. You don't have to figure out every secret. You don't have to find every dark corner of perhaps what the government is doing wrong. You can rest assured that there will be nothing that will pass by God's gaze. And concerning spiritual leaders, there's admittingly a blatant time when people are taken advantage of, when they're victims, when people are exploited for greed and they're devastated because a pastor falls into sin and relationships fall apart. And God does hold leadership accountable, even more than the average person. But it certainly doesn't excuse ourselves from being discerning of who our leaders are, of the health of our leaderships. As pastors, as elders, we want you guys to be involved in our lives, not only for our own health, but for yours, to know what's happening, to know your pastors and your leaders, and not to be passive. Paul warned Timothy this in 2 Timothy 4.2. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. What happens? They will accumulate for themselves. Yes, leadership is responsible before God, but we are also responsible to hold our leaders accountable. Teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We need to hold our leaders accountable, me included. And then also, maybe you're living a life of spiritual apathy, lacking intentionality. The chances are, if you are that or you're in a church like that, guess what the leaders are? Apathetic. Living a life without intentionality. Maybe you are that leader. You yield some influence somewhere. You're a parent. You're a coworker, you're maybe somebody's boss, you're a teacher. You influence 
authority somewhere that God has invested in you. How are you using that authority? How are you using that authority? And lastly, the pride of prosperity. Maybe you're too caught up in the pride of prosperity. You'll continue to follow God as long as it doesn't cost you anything, as long as he keeps your life flesh. You own a house, you drive a nice car, there's not much suffering happening in your life. Or maybe you're just even someone who's opposed to God. You're dragged here today by a friend or a relative, but in reality, you hate the idea of Christianity. The Christian God sounds cruel and petty, and you hate religion, you think it's caused division, and you think God doesn't see your sin or God doesn't even exist. So no matter who you are or where you come from, the chances are you too can see one or more of the sins of Judah lurking in your own heart. You too can see those sins lurking in your heart. And no one's exempt Romans says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. For those who continue in their sin and rebellion, the day of the Lord will be as Zephaniah describes it. Look at the adjectives, the words that Zephaniah uses to describe the day of the Lord. It will be filled with crying and wailing and crashing, with bitterness, with wrath, with distress and anguish and ruin and devastation and darkness gloom and jealousy and anger and desolation and judgment. It is a fearful day. But the good news of Zephaniah says there's hope for someone like you. There's hope for someone like me. Because despite the coming wrath in the day of the Lord, it will also be a day of grace. For those who have trusted in the Lord. For those who know God. Now moves us on to the day of the Lord. A day of grace. God gave Zephaniah glimpses of hope, lest he utterly crush his people throughout the first few chapters, but it culminates in the end. And God spoke of a remnant of Judah that would find refuge in God in the day of his wrath. Zephaniah 2.3 exhorts God's people. And this is what it says. Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. The humility and the obedience of the remnants would act as proof that they really did trust God. God would be mindful of them, he says in Zephaniah 2.7. One day they will shepherd in pastures and meadows. They would possess the seacoast and graze by its shores. They would relax there. The remnant would lie down in houses they didn't have to labor for, they didn't have to build. Their fortune as a nation would be restored, and God would make a swift end to every threat that was on their nation. And they will no longer experience injustice, no longer experience lies, no longer experience deceit. They would seek refuge in the Lord and not be afraid on that day. And according to Zephaniah 3.14, the remnant of Judah will sing aloud in Jerusalem 
a joyful song, exulting and rejoicing with all their heart for everything God has done. Because God will have taken away their judgments and God himself will dwell in their midst as their king himself. That will be their ruler. That will be their government and their authority of God himself. And in chapter 3, verse 17, God will be their savior. God himself will be their gladness. God himself will be their love. And God will celebrate joyfully as he thunderously sings over his redeemed people. And so for those who have trusted in God in the day of the Lord, Zephaniah describes it, this is what it will be full of. Safety and justice, truth and honesty, comfort and rejoicing, forgiveness and mercy, protection and assurance, encouragement, reconciliation, salvation, love, singing, relief, praise, renown, unity, restoration. These things will be present for those who have trusted in God in the day of the Lord. But the great news of Zephaniah is it's not just a day for the Jewish people. It's not just a day for Judah. It is a day for us too as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people. This is what it says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. This is a picture of the Gentiles coming to God. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So the day of the Lord looks forward to a day when God's people from all nations, every tribe and tongue will gather to worship the Lord. And that will be a day of grace for Jew and Gentile alike. But the truth is, we've already seen a small glimpse of that day, what the day of the Lord will be like. We've seen both the wrath of God and the grace of God meet, and it was displayed in the greatest spectacle the world has ever seen. It was displayed at the cross, And on the cross, Jesus both endured the wrath of God and secured the grace of God of all those who would come to trust in him. Jesus satisfied the justice of God and dispensed the mercy of God. Jesus was condemned so you could be forgiven. Jesus was humiliated so you could be exalted. Jesus experienced judgment so you could experience blessing. Jesus was devastated so you could prosper. Jesus was shrouded in darkness so you could shine in the light. Jesus was left desolate so we could be united. Jesus was in anguish so you could be comforted. Jesus wept so you could rejoice. Jesus got war so you could get peace. Jesus was denied, so you could be accepted, and Jesus was rejected, so you could be reconciled. There's only one place you can run in the day of the Lord 
to be hidden from God's wrath. And it's the cross of Christ. Run to Jesus. He is the cleft and the rock that will save you from God's wrath. So I started this with a joke about Zephaniah 1-2, saying it was nobody's life verse. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, maybe it should be. If you're someone who thinks weightily often about the wrath of God, you will be someone who knows well the grace of God. You will remain humble. You will be loving. And if you're someone who's unsure of your salvation, I would plead with you, flee to Christ. The day of the Lord is near. Count the patience of the Lord as mercy to you. He has given you another minute, another day to repent. The prophet Ezekiel says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do not die for your sins. God will take no pleasure in your punishment, no pleasure in the day of wrath, but justice will be done. Either you will pay for your sin or Christ will or would have. So finally, Jesus expressed in Luke 15.10 that there's rejoicing in heaven before the angels when even one sinner repents. And if you're that person, there can be rejoicing in heaven today if you turn from your sin. Run to God. Trust in Christ. Do not stiffen your neck as Israel once did. Do not stiffen your neck as those who get right before a terrible collision. They stiffen out and you will lose head to head with God. You will perish in your sins before the catastrophic collision in the day of the Lord. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that in the day of the Lord, God will sing over you. God will sing over you with rejoicing, and we will sing with you as we exalt God and rejoice in him. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for your word that is sobering. Thank you for your word that is good, Lord. Help us to praise you, not only for your grace, Lord, but for your wrath. You will right every wrong. You will give no one injustice. You will give everyone exactly what they deserve, Lord. For those who have trusted you, Lord, help us to remember that, to be encouraged by that, to know that one day everything will be right again and that we will be with you and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and there'll be no mourning or crying, Lord. But I pray for those who don't know you, that they would turn to you, that they would see the position they're in and that they will not win, Lord. They will lose in the day of wrath. Draw people to yourself, Lord. Convict them of their sin. Shield them from your wrath in that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.